Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can, a, can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of flesh is flesh. What is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, there's a great story about Ray Charles, the blind singer who was traveling from one city to another and had to stop off in Detroit for refueling and to pick up some other passengers. And a very funny thing happened in the 30-minute period while the plane was on the ground. The pilot who wanted to stretch his legs and also accommodate uh, Mr. Charles uh, came back to the passenger section and asked him if there was anything that he could do for him. And Ray Charles said, well, actually, yes. If you could take my seeing eye dog out to stretch his legs, uh, that would be terrific. So the pilot said, sure, sure, be happy to. So out he went and did as... Uh, Ray Charles had requested, and after they'd been walking for a few minutes, the pilot and the seeing eye dog began to head back up the steps and into the plane, and about that time, the flight attendant announced uh, that all those waiting to board the plane could do so, but nobody moved at all. They just looked out the window and saw the pilot with the seeing eye dog <laughs> getting on the plane. And they just stood in disbelief. One man said, you know, I've heard about pilots being instrument rated and all that, but this is taking it a bit too far. <laughs> well, some people see very well, don't they? 
And some people do not. Some people have very good insight and others do not. And we're going to learn today about a character in the Bible who was not that good at insight. We read about him in the third chapter of John, a gospel that is very different from the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John was written in the late first century, late 80s, early 90s, right in there. But the way it portrays Jesus and the disciples is a very different picture. In John are some unique features that are not found in any other gospel. And I'm sure you've heard those stories and have had a hard time figuring out, now which gospel writer said that and wrote that? And what we tend to do in the church is we blend together all those stories into one big story. And we do that mostly in Christmas pageants, even though two of the Gospels don't even speak about uh, the birth of Jesus. Uh, and the wise men are mentioned in uh, Luke, but not in Matthew. And the Easter story, too. Just wait. You're going to hear how we blend them together because it's somehow easier to make one larger story and easy to forget that good Bible study can be difficult and we church folks don't like confusion all the time, and we're at a loss sometimes as to what to do with those differences. So let me tell you just a little bit about some of the unique qualities of the Gospel of John, written after Paul, after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It was written and edited several times, meaning that really there was more than one author. So when I speak of John today, I'm going to be speaking of the whole edited book, not so much the author. There is no account, as I said, of a miraculous birth. There is no Sermon on the Mount, no description of the Last Supper, no anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane. The setting is mostly in Jerusalem, with Jesus returning to Galilee only to escape the hostile Judean authorities. In the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus goes to Jerusalem once, but in John, he's there for three Passovers. So instead of miracles, Jesus speaks of signs which describe a dramatic truth breaking into our human realm. So remember, I said that it was edited over time, and we certainly see that in the opening prologue, words that have a cosmic quality to them. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Such a unique beginning for a gospel to have. It actually takes us outside of our world for just a moment and places us in God's world for, for a time. And here today, we encounter this man, Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, that council of, of about 20, 23 people who deal with religious matters. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, and Nicodemus is only mentioned in the Gospel of John. He says that Nicodemus comes in the night. Now, that's important. 
because he's a person in the dark. Jesus is a person who is in the light. And John likes to juxtapose light and dark. And Nicodemus just doesn't understand Jesus. How can a man go back in his mother's womb? Jesus is talking about an entirely different kind of birth, a birth that leads to a new life. But you and I should identify with Nicodemus because sadly we don't understand Jesus either often. If we did, we wouldn't spend so much time on things of the dark, judgment, injustice, oppression. Nicodemus has a hard time breaking out of the religious straitjacket that he can live in, that sometimes we are in too. He is confronted by a Jesus who offers an experience of life beyond anything he's ever experienced before. But Nicodemus doesn't get it. He remains in fear and focuses rather on control and religious authority. He uses religion to keep himself from seeing beyond the comfort of security and safety, for he won't risk. He won't let go. In this encounter, we see that Nicodemus is told, unless one is born of water and spirit, he or she cannot enter this realm of God. If you're born of water, you're born of the earth. To be born of the spirit, you must break into a new realm. Jesus identifies the spirit with the wind that blows where it will. To be born of the Spirit is this same kind of experience. It's mysterious, and yet it's very much from God. Bishop Tom Bickerton spoke of this text, on this text, this last Monday night. And trust me, I was listening very carefully. The writers of John are saying to us that Jesus points to a transformative Christ experience, an experience that is ultimately different from anything we've experienced before. And it's filled with love, joy, faith, and goodness. It's a way out of the darkness we're in. Who Jesus is and what he is about is life with a capital L and an exclamation point at the end of it. He points us to a God that has always been about life and living it with fullness and without fear. Do not be afraid. Jesus says that over and over and over again. Why can't we break out and live that way? That's the Nicodemus dilemma. He remains in fear. Jesus is about life and not death, spirit, not judgment, hope, and not sin. It's a matter of seeing with the proper eyes. Some call it insight or second sight, but you must open yourself to a totally new perspective. 
Well, I learned recently about a documentary called Following the Ninth. And I called Circle Cinema here in town, and I asked them if they would bring it to Tulsa. And lo and behold, they did. They brought it here, and it only played for three weeks. So I'm about to tell you about this documentary, but you can't go see it. Uh, it's not here anymore. It only played for a short while. But it was terrific, and I'll find a way to, to get it back here, I hope. Uh, it, it was a documentary that told four stories about Japan, China, Chile, and East Germany. Each of those countries had stories of tragedy and destruction that the world knew very much about. East Germany built the Berlin Wall in 1961 until it was torn down in 1989. China in 1989 experienced a wave of revolt from its young students calling for democracy and a better life. Their idealism was squashed in the aftermath of a strike by the, by the Chinese government in Tiananmen Square. Chile suffered through a deadly period of dictatorship under Augusto Pinochet in the 1970s and 80s. And Japan suffered its worst tsunami on record three years ago this week, wiping out entire cities and villages in a matter of minutes. All of these stories were bolstered by the people playing Beethoven's Ninth Symphony during the, the crisis. I know it sounds very unusual, but over and over again, the documentarians showed how the students of China, the people of East Germany, the mothers and wives of those killed in Chile and murdered, the tsunami victims in Japan, all of them played the ninth, that is, the ninth symphony of Beethoven with all of its beauty, all of its energy and joy over loudspeakers to give hope to the cause they were fighting. This is the symphony that has the ode to joy in it. Oh, listen to that. Wow. <laughs> wow. Wow. It's like it just came right out of the walls. I, I'm just amazed. That's incredible. Well, here's what one author wrote about the ninth. He said, the ninth forming and dissolving before our ears in its beauty and terror and simplicity and complexity, ending with a cry of jubilation, is itself Beethoven's kiss to the world. From east to west, high to low, naive to sophisticated, when the bass speaks the first words in the finale, an invitation to sing for joy, the words come from Beethoven's heart. It's the composer talking to everybody, to history. That's what's so moving about these words. There, Beethoven greets us person to person with glass raised and hails us as friends. Isn't that wonderful? Now, here's the backstory. The documentarians tell how Beethoven wrote this work during a tremendous time of despair for him 
There was war in the country. The economy was down in the pits. He was profoundly deaf and could not hear a single note of his competition. In fact, it's said that at the finish of the very first playing of the Ninth Symphony, the mezzo-soprano had to tap Beethoven on the arm. He was facing the orchestra. She had to tap him on the arm to turn him around to see the audience cheering and crying after he had uh, played that symphony, after the orchestra had played. It was a time of tremendous emotion uh, for him. But following the Ninth, that documentary, it tells the story of Beethoven and his struggle to finally create that, that final symphony and that resonance that the Ninth uh, had with people as it traveled across the globe, inspiring, challenging, and repairing people as it went over the last 190 years when the Chinese military invaded Tiananmen Square in 1989. The students there were playing the Ode to Joy as their anthem of liberation. And in that same year, Leonard Bernstein conducted the Ninth at the Berlin Wall, where people were in the process of dismantling this symbol of oppression and the human will for freedom. In Chile, women marched in the streets under the threat of death during Pinochet's dictatorship singing their version of the Ode to, of the Ninth called the Hymn of Happiness at the walls of torture prisons and inside men and women without hope heard them and they knew they were not alone. In Japan, that's an ama this is an amazing story, the Ninth has become a symbol of rejuvenation and national celebration. It is performed every December, many times, up to like 50 times all around the country, and often features 10,000 plus singers in the chorus. People, Japanese people, who have struggled for six months to master the German choral section that Beethoven used, and he used it for the very first time in the writing of a symphony, putting a choral section in. And Japan is the only place where one can choose the Ninth Symphony in a karaoke room. <laughs> I just give you that free of charge. You can just take that's fine. I didn't have to say that, but I did. These are people who understand what living in the light is all about. It's choosing life over death and having the attitude to say yes to the world's no. Now, as I said, in just one week, John Philip Newell will be coming to Boston Avenue and make two presentations on Celtic Christianity. Celtic Christianity is an expression of the Christian faith that comes out of Scotland and Ireland and England. It offers a different way of seeing Christ and how Christ operates in the world. I recommend, again, that free lecture on the Monday night, the 24th. Celtic Christianity's main focus is on the creation of God and how that creation shows us a blessing, shows God's love for us. We are the recipients of that love in so many ways. Do you know 
that the story of creation is one of the most tremendous and awe-inspiring stories that we know. And the amazing thing is that the Bible writers didn't know the story that we now know. They still thought of the world as a three-tiered universe with the heavens above, the earth in the middle, and some kind of life-death below. From the moment of the Big Bang, or what I like to call the flaring forth, life has fought very hard to make it on this planet. It is tenacious. And probably the best example of that is what we gardeners are going to curse at this coming spring. Weeds! That's right, you're going to read about how to kill all those weeds over the next season. But let me give you some advice right now. You're going to fail. You're going to fail. You're going to lose the battle because all we really can do is control them. In one book that I read, it started off saying, Evolution is weed's best friend. <laughs> Whenever a new herbicide is introduced, weeds mutate to adapt, those dirty buggers. <laughs> and they thrive. Have you ever heard of barnyard grass? I hadn't. But barnyard grass, depending on your perspective, is a nightmare or it's a marvel. That's because it is a truly triumphant weed. Barnyard grass can swoop into fields and outcompete planted crops. It is particularly devastating on rice crops, where losses sometimes number 100%. Many uh, barnyard grass plants are resistant to herbicides that many farmers currently rely on, but even when farmers think that they have rid uh, the, the field of barnyard grass, oh no, they may find that they haven't won the battle. Why? Because each weed can produce up to a million seeds that just settle right into the soil, waiting for a chance to regrow. Barnyard grass is but one of many weeds found all around the world. So I say, wow! But you know what I say too? We need to live our lives like that, with the tenacity of barnyard grass, if you will. You and I have the same DNA inside of us that any barnyard grass has inside of it. John is saying to us that we need to live our lives with a spirit of survival that won't give up. It's built into our DNA. We are the stuff of weeds. But you know what? That doesn't preach very well, does it? It really doesn't. You know, I don't want you to go home and say, Bill Kroll called me a weed today. So let me say this. We are the stuff of the stars. That sounds better, doesn't it? We're the stuff of the stars. We have the original creation story built into our DNA. That divine spark is there and remains there no matter how we choose to live our lives. And Nicodemus was a man who placed himself close to the light, but he never entered the light. 
He, as well as the Judean authorities that he symbolized, could not get beyond the flesh that they knew. And because of that, they couldn't get beyond the grave. Death was all they could see. It ruled their lives and ordered their, rule, their world. It's like living in a box and never seeing beyond the edges of that box. We are people who follow Jesus Christ. And that means we are people who prefer light over darkness, life over death, joy over despair. I want you to go home today and listen to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. It's 74 minutes long. It's not just the Ode to Joy. That's the last part. The rest of it is marvelous too. Go home and listen to Beethoven's Ninth. You will be inspired. Your darkness will change over to light and you will be born again. One more story. Did you hear the story on CBS about 50-year-old Steve McKee who was diagnosed with an incurable form of cancer last year? His oldest son, Mitch, took it upon himself to make the, dis the disease disappear, if only for a moment. It was a plan that only a 15-year-old boy 